welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours as always. Today's guest is quite a coup, actually. I've been on the trail for a while and you all know who he is. His name is Jeremy Corbyn, uh, former leader of the Labour Party, close to being Prime Minister. I've been such an admirer of his work in Parliament for decades ever since I was an admirer of one of his colleagues, Tony Benn, back in the 80s. He's an incredible person as far as I'm concerned. His integrated vision for this country is exactly what is needed currently. Uh, we have a wide-ranging discussion, uh, not solely about politics, uh, also about his other interests, including the arts and music and cinema and manholes but his activism in general. I have got nothing but admiration for the man. He's the Prime Minister that we should have now in place of those Egypts that are in power. Here he is. He needs no further introduction. Jeremy Corbyn. Hi, Martin. All right. How are you? Um, all right, mustn't grumble. I you don't get anywhere if you do. Yeah, first of all, want to thank you for doing this. It's very, very kind of you. Uh, secondly, I just want to let you know that in the room, I've got my two most trusted friends and advisors, Lucy and Chaz. Hi, Jeremy. You can't see Chaz. Chaz will introduce himself. Hi, uh, who are both big fans, so you're safe. Hi, there. hi, Lucy. Hi, Chaz. As you know, young people love you anyway, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Um, right, well, let's start. I mean, one of the main things that I wanted to do in this uh, time we've got available is to kind of dig a bit deeper about your cultural life, I suppose, because um, we don't often hear much about it. We we know everything about your political life, of course, and, of course, we're all fans of that. But um, So I, to start off with, I just want to ask you about your... Your, do you have a love of music? What what kind of music do you like? I um, first of all, there's a health warning here. I'm not at all. I have no musical abilities whatsoever. Me neither. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, if there's any singing going on, I'm usually asked to mime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so. Um, uh, uh, that's the, the first point. And the second is, I do like a lot of music um, of differing types. I mean, I wouldn't say I've got any one particular thing. I think people are actually influenced heavily by the music they listen to in their most formative musical years, which are usually teenage years. And people are heavily influenced by that, which is probably why so many advertising jingles directed at 50 year olds and so on go with the music of the 80s and, and so on, you know, you know how it works. Um, and so, yes, I have a wide variety of musical tastes. In my formative years, I spent two years living in Jamaica which was um, at the um, end of the Scar period, the start of the Rocksteady period. So that was fascinating, um, fascinating for lots of reasons. One, because it was Jamaican music rather than um, imported American or European music. 
Um, and it's um, Bob Marley, who's the most famous of them all, but there are many others. The roots of a lot of that music was actually African rhythms and African culture, which I found fascinating because I was also beginning then to start studying um, African and Caribbean history in a totally, not in an academic way, in my own interest. And um, I found that really interesting to follow that kind of music and then see it develop. I also had the great joy of going to a carnival in um, uh, Trinidad at that time, which um, they had the Calypso tents. And I went to a Calypso tent with the mighty Sparrow. Oh, yeah. What a, what a, what a turn, what a star. <laughs> he, he would... He kind of, he liked winding everybody up, so he would spend the first sort of half hour of a very lengthy session winding up the audience, being rude about them, rude about people, rude about just about everything, getting them all angry. And if occasionally we would throw things at the stage and stuff like this. <laughs> and then he would gradually turn the whole thing around so they're all singing along with him. Oh, brilliant. My, well, what, my... But sorry, what a guy. Yeah. yeah, sorry to interrupt. One uh one of my uh musicians, guitarist, is a white Trinidadian guy, and he, he used to go to tri uh, Trinidad every year for carnival. And he used to play with Mighty Sparrow. Wow. Yeah, I know. No way. He was his go to guitarist, yeah. Isn't that great? Well, fantastic. So that was some of it. And then of course the sixties were also um time of a lot of um, protest music, particularly about the Vietnam War and so on. And I was impressed with um, a lot of that. But what also fascinated me there was the first time I'd ever heard a steel band. Yeah. I mean, in rural Shropshire in the 60s and 50s, there wasn't a big demand for steel band music <laughs> or any other kind of music for that matter. Um, and um, then hearing... Um, part of Beethoven's Ninth played on a steel band. Wow. Was incredible. You know, the, the chorus was played on a steel band. And that to me was quite amazing. So I have this sort of eclectic mix of musical taste. So I also um, followed a lot of um, Latin American music of the 60s and 70s, particularly um, Inti Limani, who played endlessly after the coup in Chile, but also Victor Hara and his political poetry and song and the way that he mobilised people through that. So it's the power of music. As to what I do now, I have um, a lot of classical music on at home when I'm doing stuff at home working. Um, I kind of like Radio 3 on the principle that I think it's a good idea to have a classical radio channel. But some of it is a bit up itself and a bit boring, to be quite honest. You, you know, I mean, they, they do take themselves incredibly seriously. That's that's for sure. I don't think there's a lot of laughs around the studio in Radio 3 somehow. Um, classic FM is kind of irritating the number of adverts that uh, peak in the middle, you know, particularly for selling second-hand cars, which is, um, I'd rather listen to Marla than hear an advert of second-hand cars, you know. <laughs> but so I have that on. And then... Um, uh, in the sense of other musical tastes, as I say, they're very wide and very general. 
we worked very well with um, uh, Emily Sunday and um, the music she did with us for the launch of our arts manifesto in 2019. She was incredible, and Clean Bandit came along as well. So we have, so it's it's a kind of weird mixture of of music, and I think, but I do think music is very important, and. Um, all the schools that I go to, the first question I always ask them is, what music teaching do you have? What musical experience do you have for your students? Because it always seems to me wrong that in state schools, whenever there's a, a funding crisis, the first thing that goes is art. The next thing that goes Ooh. is music. The third thing that goes is sport. The fourth thing that goes is any trips out and so on and so on. And so if you go, for example, to the proms which i do usually once a year i've not been this year but usually i go just a one um the adverts in the program are nearly all for private schools and private music education that's wrong it's every a, child every child should have the opportunity to learn a musical instrument which is why i was very insistent and in putting into both of my manifestos was um a pupil arts premium which would be ring fenced to ensure that all children had an opportunity for theater music and uh, art well that's amazing jeremy i have to say my career personal career with m17 and humanly would never have happened were it not for a labor council in sheffield um paying for a, a youth drama project called Meat Whistle where I met all my band members and we got to experiment in, 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 a, in a safe environment if you like before we put it out into the world and that that thing changed my life you know and yeah. you know and I know you've, you're, you're a big um, endorser of uh, youth activities I mean there's a number of youth clubs that have been closed across the country in the oh. last it's just a disgrace, frankly. And, and also having place for young people to musically experiment. So it's not just in school. It's also rehearsal and play spaces that are safe. And so uh, we have in my own community a lot of community centres, partly because we've had a council that's been basically prepared to keep them open and support them, but also we've got a very strong community basis in support of them. So it would be politically very difficult for any council to close them. That helps because that gives some musical opportunities, but also the number of what used to be music venue pubs that have been turned into some incredibly boring corporate gastro pub with no live music. You know, I know. I'm so live music's crucial. Yeah, I'm a member of the Music Venues Trust who who work okay. towards. Um, you know, supporting uh, the public perception of small venues has been an important breeding ground for new talent, you know, and a lot of these pubs, well, we know what's happening with, uh, it was on the news this morning, in fact, about a lot of pubs have been threatened with extinction due to the yeah. costs involved. Yeah. And um, anyway, so th there's that. Do you have any, um, do you have any uh, ex uh, love of British comedy? Yeah. Yeah, I do. No, I'm not. In, I'm not including the Tory Party in this. By the way. No, no, well, I thought they were sort of pretty good comedy. What I thought was <laughs> that to commemorate this historic day when Boris Johnson will or tomorrow cease to be Prime Minister, we should offer. You know, we're thinking about it from the Peace and Justice Project, a special offer for early Christmas sales of a new kettle and a bottle of bleach, <laughs> so that the kettle to save 
on electricity bills over the next 350 years to get the value of the kettle back and a bottle of bleach in case COVID comes back in memory of Donald Trump. And so we'd have it as a, as a package. And so £20 for a kettle, we could probably cut the price a bit. So say £25 kettle and bleach together with a Christmas card. What do you reckon? I think it'll catch I think on. It's gonna, I think it's going to work. I think, actually, I've just thought that the new name for the Tory party could be the Goons. I think the Goons, cool. yes, yeah. yes. But they were funny. <laughs> <laughs> These lot are sort of tragic um, in in lots of ways. Oh, oh, oh my God! It, it, but when you say British comedy, how do you define British comedy? I suppose stuff that's been on British TV. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, actually, British comedy has been a big export um, mm. thing as well. I mean, you, you know. You, you, some of it is. I watched with um, my um, niece's two children, which I spent a lot of time looking after, are aged four and two, just coming up to three. And um, I was watching uh, a Mr. Bean comedy with them, a cartoon of Mr. Bean. And um, I was just thinking, it's incredibly simplistic humour, but it's very, very funny. And it's funny for all ages. And so what, watching Mr. Bean with a four year old. You, you but we're both laughing at the same thing, whereas, uh, <laughs> which was kind of nice because it's all kind of simplistic, slightly obvious humor in some ways. But I, I think that's that's great because it does sort of give people that sense of well being coming together, you know. Yeah, and and you know, I was thinking back to the 80s, you know, I was a member of Red Wedge and all that stuff, yep, yep. and that was all kind of linked together with the alternative comedy scene, which was. You know, very supportive of socialist and left wing thought yeah. at that point, and now we seem to have a lot of public school boys who are uh, <laughs> who have become who have become very popular in, uh, in particularly on the BBC, um, and you see that that entire scene. Well, there is a symbiotic relationship between the BBC and public schools, isn't there? Oh, slightly, you could say that. Maybe, yeah. I dare I say, Cambridge as well, perhaps. In Oxford. That too. Yeah. Um, we had it was at Burston yesterday for the um, commemoration of the school strike in Burston in the 20s and 30s. And um, we had um, a speech in the afternoon, uh, well, in the morning and afternoon. There was Mick Lynch spoke, um, I did, and a number of others, and March to Cordova. We also had quite a lot of local bands on. And we had uh, Mark Thomas giving a. He's a good very, very good man. Very long, long term, in which I think he was trying out a load of gags. <laughs> he was great, though. But it was what was nice was we had it was nice weather. The place was completely full. Lots of people there. So you had the combination of political speeches, music and so on. And I always try and bring um, some degree of poetry into all of my speeches because I do think um, the poets often say the truth. Absolutely. I mean, would you, I mean, obviously you regard yourself as a man of the people. Do you regard yourself as embedded in the people or, you know, I mean, you're obviously you're happy to lead a people's movement. I mean, that's what the Peace and Justice Project is about. Mm. Um, but, you know, why, I suppose the question I'm asking is, why do you frighten the establishment so much? Um... Well, they're obviously very easily frightened, um, there's that. But um, I think it's the the politics that 
we put forward, which is not about managing the current economy. It's about changing the basis of the economy. And um, it's not so much the straight public ownership things that um, frightens them. It's the prospect of a degree of workers' control of companies, of workers being elected to management boards, of democracy in football clubs, um, and a principle in society that you remove the endless competition in education and so much else in, and exchange that for the principle of uh, provision for all. And so what uh, I'm trying to do, well, not me, lots of people are, is to change, say, the culture on education. I think our children are overstressed, overtested, and overstretched. And that ends up with, yes, a number of them do pass all those tests and do extremely well, but a large number go, fall by the wayside, end up not achieving their potential in life, and uh, they become resentful as a result of it. The principle of inclusion of all is important. Likewise, in housing policy, the first policy I was intending to announce was the end of all rough sleeping homelessness immediately. Wow. It, immediately, just say, as of now, there is no more rough sleeping. They will be housed. And every local authority has a duty to house them. Hotels, whatever, just house them. So the principle being, I wanted to give a loud, strong statement. The principle is we care for everybody. And that, to me, is so important. So also, I suspect what um, many of the establishment are upset about is my um, uh, opposition to wars all of my life and my search for peace where you can find it. And... Uh, you have to go down some fairly dodgy corridors to find that piece, but it is important to do it. And so I I find it's beyond tragic that in a world that's faced with um, environmental crises, if not disaster, growing gap between the richest and the poorest, both globally and within our own society, uh, all of the Western nations are busy increasing arms expenditure it's to a, a massive extent. It's outrageous. Yeah, we're what going up to 2.4% of GDP on arms, which is um, like, well, that's wartime levels of expenditure. What about the Peace and Justice Project then? What, how is that going to manifest itself in the future? Do you have well, any intention of making it a political party? Um, it, it is a project to try and provide a political home for people, irrespective of, of party. It is about radical alternatives, but it's also about the empowerment of people. And so for I'll give you some examples. Um, we've set up some news clubs around the country, and part of the reason of being a burst in yesterday was to support the Suffolk News Club. These are people that come together that are unhappy about the news values that adopted both by broadcast and print media, and the way of looking at an alternative story and how they can produce that. It also means aggregating that across the country to a much better access to alternative television. At the moment, we've got Navara, we've got Double Down News, we've got a few others. I would like us to see have a much stronger platform where we can get those radical voices out. Some of the unions, particularly the CWU and Unite, are doing some very good work in those areas. So that's on the media side of things. We're doing um, a lot of work on um, both food and clothing justice. And we're working with 
people in a number of places with closing banks and opportunities for good quality clothing. Having a food bank, in a sense, is obvious. You need a food bank to need to eat. People also need to have reasonable clothes to be able to wear. I mean, in some cases, for some things like job interviews and so on, but also having that access to clothing, the right to clothing. And so we've been working with um, a number of um, clothing group campaigns in um, Nottingham and other places. And uh, next um, month or later this month, we're doing an event in Manchester to uh, launch something there. And then we're also working on environment with Just Stop Oil and other other groups on, um, on um, the sort of need to really give people a short, sharp shock about um, just how dangerous what we're doing to the environment and natural world is. And I suspect the energy crisis at the moment won't necessarily, it should be, used as an opportunity to convert to green energy. It might be saying, well, let's ditch all that and go back to um, polluting fossils. And the other area we do a lot of work is an in international um, solidarity. So we've been working with the Brazilian community in exile, so to speak, to get support for Lula in the presidential campaign. And we've done the same in other Latin American countries and in supporting international trade unionism. So I was recently in Mexico with the International Transport Workers Federation um, doing um, support for union recognition campaigns. We're also supporting union recognition campaign here through uh, Samworth Brothers in um, near Leicester, which is a very big baker. They bake serene loaves and others. They don't recognize trade unions. We're working closely with the Bakers Union on that. So I see ourselves as a creative facility. We've got a small team of staff and we've got um, a large number of people that very generously give us small donations every month. There's no big bank roller of this project. No, well, uh, and there never will I, be. I'm sending you a few quid every month. So, uh, thank you very much. Amongst uh, amongst many others, and I hope people who are listening to thank you very much would consider it. Um, okay, if you if the Peace and Justice Project are not going to become a uh, a political party that stands for uh, as MP, as MP. political force, though political force. <clears throat> um, what is the future for uh, socialism in Britain? Because, I mean, I resigned from the Labour Party when, when they suspended you. Mm -hmm. I used to be, until recently, in Keir Starmer's uh, constituency. I gave him the benefit of the doubt, even though he was part of the, uh, the swathe of MPs that tried to persuade you to stand down. Uh, and my uh, second chance for him uh, has evaporated because he's reneged on pretty much mm. all the pledges that he's uh, he made to get into power. So I can't any longer. Um, I may well vote for Labour because there's no alternative. But I what what's the future for the left in? Well, um, socialism will never disappear. The ideas of socialism will never disappear. And I remember Tony Benn saying that um, you can mess about with structures, you can mess about with um, figures, but you can't change the principles of socialism. And at, uh, again, back to Burston yesterday, I was invited to speak there. And I said that what 
the Burton School strike was in the great traditions of those that had gone before, right back to the Peasants' Revolt, the English Civil War, the Chartists, and all, all those that campaigned when there wasn't necessarily a political party that they could identify with. And uh, nevertheless, they did that campaigning. And those very brave people, they eventually gave us uh, the National Health Service, they gave us council housing, they gave us some degrees of public ownership. But above all, they gave that, that point about hope. Mick Lynch spoke yesterday, and it was very interesting, his contribution, because Mick was asked, not yesterday, but another time, was asked what was his um, uh, most important political figure, and he said James Connolly. Um, I don't think the interviewer had ever heard of James Connolly or knew anything about it, which was probably just as well, because that allowed Mick to talk about James Connolly. <laughs> um, now, I, I'd agree with Mick on that, actually. I think he was the most amazing and significant figure, and his execution in 1916 was wrong in every sense, because any execution is wrong. But um, the brilliant mind and thoughts he had for a completely self-taught, poverty-stricken individual Imagine he had lived another 20 or 30 years, what he would have written, what he would have achieved, and what he would have mobilised for. Um, and so that issue is there. Now then, we're into a period when people are frightened over bills, frightened over cost of living, frightened over future of their housing, frightened over work. And we have at the same time the most unbelievable levels of greed and inequality in our society. And so what Mick was saying was, well, it's this, it's now, it's this this autumn, it's this, it's this winter when the active working class in trade unions are actually leading the way. It's not political parties. It's not the Labour Party that's leading this campaign. It's very much the the rail workers, health workers and so on. And I think that's absolutely right, because that means they have a clear set of demands. They're not going to be satisfied till they've got them, which is job security, safety of work and decent wages. Um, I, I think we've got to see what develops from all of that. Now, I am obviously active through the Peace and Justice Project, but also active in uh, supporting trade unions and the, the work that I do. So it's um, a period of um, development and creative change. And I think we should be having the same discussion in about six months' time and see what's developed then. Excellent, excellent. We need a nucleation point for people to... Yeah come together really i mean i joined unite as soon as i left the labor party because i thought there was more chance of political change in the uk through through unite than there was through the existing yep. plp well i'm going into parliament this afternoon and i know what will happen i'll feel that sense of frustration and anger when i get there mm. at the sort of arrogance point scoring self-satisfaction of it um and there's going to be talk about Yes, I guess a um, windfall tax. So there will also be talk about aiding our energy companies, blah, blah, blah. Will they be talking about public ownership only if I get to speak? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But where's the... Where, I've been a little bit disappointed, Jeremy, with um, the other... Uh, your other left-wing allies in Parliament not being quite as uh, as vocal maybe in this point of crisis as as they should have been i know there's a problem with the media reporting it that goes without saying but um i i just i i've got a sense that that, that maybe it's just everybody keeping their powder dry 
uh, for a while. But what do you think about that? I think people should speak up much more, much more, much more loudly and much more boldly on issues of war and peace, on issues of racism and discrimination in our society, and on the the issues of economic justice. I mean, when we've um, completed our discussion this morning, I'm going down to the demonstration at the Royal Courts of Justice against the Rwanda refugee program. It's absolutely disgraceful and outrageous. Absolutely. I don't see that as something different or separate from the um, other campaigns we're involved with. I see it as part and parcel of the same thing. Wow. Okay. Um, never mind that. What about football? So you're an Arsenal supporter. Yes. I'm a Sheffield yes. Wednesday supporter. You've caused the... You personally and your team have caused me enormous grief over I know. I remember that year when um, the very generous Arsenal supporters, when Sheffield Wednesday came to play at uh, Highbury the following season, the only the North Bank, I must be said, started singing what's it like to lose two cups to lose oh. two cups in <laughs> one season it was brutal and it was cruel but i also remember um there was a <clears throat> a um a penalty given to arsenal against sheffield wednesday and it really was the most stupid softest penalty ever it should never have been given and I'm an Arsenal supporter. When it yeah. was given to Sheffield Wednesday. It, it was it was given to Arsenal rather against Sheffield Wednesday. Dennis Bergkamp stepped up to take the penalty, which he didn't normally do. He obviously thought it was a load of nonsense as well, and put the ball wide. Did he? Well, you think deliberately? I think so. Oh. He would never. He would never admit to that. But he couldn't. But I just got. I got the feeling Bergkamp doesn't miss. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's two things. Um... Steve Bould, right, was a oh, brute, yeah. was a brute, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> he broke the ankle of David Hurst in a game that we played at, at, at Highbury. But David Hurst continued playing for half an hour with a broken ankle. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. Remember anyway. that so that that back four of Dixon Bould, Winterburn, oh. Adams. There were. Well, I, I got the feeling that. Any striker running up to them was just slightly frightened of them. Would would that. Two second pause. Oh God! <laughs> but uh, st but on the other side of the coin, Steve Bould scored one of the best own goals I've ever seen at Hillsborough when we when we beat you one nil at Hillsborough. You didn't usually do so well at Hillsborough, but you have given us some terrible hammerings. I'm really I'm sorry about that, but um, yeah. you're playing one of my other team that I quite like um, recently, and that's Forest Green Rovers. Oh yeah, we beat we beat. Them. You beat you thrashed them absolutely, yeah. totally. And, uh, but I like the idea of a sort of vegan club in a wooden stadium. Um, <laughs> but they're building this wooden stadium near um, Nailsworth in Gloucester. Yes, yeah, a wooden stadium. They've got all the fire regulations and stuff passed, and they're building it. But their other stadium they're in at the moment called the Lawn. We held an election rally there in Stroud. Wow. And Dale. Dale Introduced us, and I was allowed to stand on the hollow, hollowed turf to address the crowd in the grand, I, I in the grandstand. Even, I didn't even know where Forest Green was, to be honest. When well, it's near between sort of Stroud and Nailsworth. It was a pub team for the first century of its existence, and then it made it into the um, National League, and then finally got. Now it's up to League One. Wow. Okay, so um, I've got a question here from uh, uh, one of my friends who said, um, "Did you ever go clubbing?" No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, okay. No. 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 I'm. I'm kind of. Um, I, I. I mean. I don't know if you remember this during the leadership campaign 2015. 
<clears throat> we're in, we're on um, Ian Dale and LBC, and it's there's four of us. Uh, Andy Burnham, you know, this candle and so on. And we're, we're sitting around the table, and he decides to ask everyone if they've ever taken drugs. <laughs> and I'm the last to answer. So it goes down all three, and they all said, you know, they'd um, they'd held cannabis but never inhaled or whatever, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, all this sort of thing. But they've clearly all had a relationship with um, with cannabis and maybe other drugs as well. And it gets to me, and I said, no. What do you mean? I said, no. You must have. You lived in Jamaica. I said, don't stereotype Jamaica. You know, no. And so the great thing was we, we come out of the thing at the end. And um, as we're walking down the corridor, Adley Burnham's phone goes off straight away. And he answers the phone. And you could hear his mum shouting at him. <laughs> she said, you, you never told me. <laughs> You never told me <laughs> you've ruined your career. That's it. Yeah. That's um, it. If, your, if your mum condemns you, that's uh, it, isn't it? You know. What about um I've got to ask you about manholes. What's wrong with them? Nothing. I love them. I mean I I I'm fascinated. What is it about them though that you Well, want? you see, my mum was a um a bit of a polymath in many ways, I suppose you'd call her. She was a teacher, but she was a, a careers teacher as well as um, science and maths teacher. And she was very good at persuading girls to go into um, scientific and engineering courses rather than um, ones that girls in the 60s were pushed into doing. Um, but she was also very interested in social history. And I remember her saying to me, if you look at the covers of drains, you can work out the history of the area. Yeah, it's true. And I thought, I thought, wow, yeah. And you think about it, you can actually. So you walk along the road out here where my office is. There are um, drain covers which are from the vestry of St Mary, which was a thing that preceded Islington Borough Council. There's Islington Borough Council ones. There's London County Council tramways ones. There's old post office ones and so on and so on. And you can actually tell the history of the area from this. And so um, I do go around taking some pictures of them occasionally, which people think is a bit weird. And then we had a delegation from the Norwegian Labour Party camp, and they came to see me. And they were really nice. We had a long chat about environment, lots of issues in Norway. In the end of it, they said, we want, we've got a present for you. So they give me this parcel, I open it, and it's a book. And it's a book of Norwegian manhole covers, <laughs> all in Norwegian, unfortunately. So my Norwegian isn't what it used to be. So, but I've got the book and some amazing, intricate ones. And because uh, people think that I spend my whole life looking at manhole covers, I often get sent pictures of some truly beautiful ones in different yeah, parts of the world, where the cast iron mouldings and so on on top of them. Now, in Sheffield, uh, you must have some very old ones there relating to the various county council, borough council, etc. Um, sure. things that have administered Sheffield over the years. I I'm sure there are. I mean, I live in uh, Marylebone now. I've lived in London for 40 years. Mm. And, um, do you know, I it's really weird. I do actually make a specific point of looking at manhole covers where I've taken lots of photos of them as well. So we're obviously kindred spirits in that. So we sort of form a sort of secret manhole no. cover society. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a secret guild. Manhole guild. Manhole guild and manhole cover photographers. Um, somebody else asked a question. Um, 
Would you ever start your own podcast? Yeah. Yeah, be happy to. I yeah, think we, it's a good way of distribute informally distributing. We, we did. We started doing some of this. I did um, a discussion with Maxine Peak um, uh, last month. We were in Manchester for the uh, Peterloo commemoration, and afterwards we went to the People's History Museum. And Maxine and Great, I buddy. had a oh, fantastic. And Maxine and I had a chat for about an hour, which we edited down a bit. It was absolutely fascinating. Her take on theater access to theater young women's access to theater music and so on and what you know what a, what a diamond she is isn't she oh well she's been on the podcast and mm. we're just like kindred spirits you know we mm. both grew up in poor working class environment and in the north and um she's just a great a great advocate and she's fearless that's what i love about her. absolutely she, she doesn't care who she upsets no she's she's not <clears throat> and, and i'd put you into that category as well you are honest direct fearless throughout your career and I, I, that you. is something that i think people can smell that warmth authenticity you know Thank and you. it's a rare thing in today's world as we know um right what other questions have we got um do you think do you think music can make a difference Yes, I do, because um, everyone has some musical knowledge and musical ability, even though they don't think about it. I mean, just the simple thing of drumming your hands like that or trying to play a tune on a table, something like that, or humming a tune. Everybody has some. Um, it also um, is a release for many people. And I've been in um, schools, special schools for children with profound disabilities or... Um, schools where they've got children who've got profound disabilities but are part of mainstream education and you see the release that music gives them absolutely they might have difficulty in communicating voice wise as we are at the moment but their um, music is a release to them and so can it educate and inspire people absolutely and if you think of the the most fantastic bits of music um think of um Beethoven and all those that wrote amazing stuff in the 18th, 17th and 18th and early 19th century. That was a time when probably 60% of the population of Europe would be illiterate. Just imagine we'd had universal education, how many more musicians there would be, how much more could be written and achieved. I think um, some music is incredibly stirring. Now, question really, I mean, Europe, Europe, obviously would understand this. If you like a piece of music, like say, um, <clears throat> The Rite of Spring, Stravinsky, beautiful piece of music. If he'd called it instead, um, Sunset Over Dartmoor, <laughs> just suppose, would it have the same effect? Or are we influenced by the title that he gave it? We are influenced by the metaphorical associations. Yeah. So it's like setting expectations for the emotional impact of music. I've, I mean, throughout my career, I've been fascinated by how different forms of music and different chord structures and progressions affect people's emotional state. Um, I, I knew, know what I was going to ask you was, do you have any uh, empathy with... Um, because it's part of folk history, about folk music. I mean, is there any any of that that you're... Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, I think the, the power of folk music in English radical history, well, and Scottish and Welsh for that matter, but English radical history is 
amazing and significant because it was the oral history that was passed yes. from generation to generation, the songs that were passed. And um, those people that went around collecting those at a time when recorded music came in and that began to reduce. And I think folk music and folk history that goes with it is highly significant and was a major part of bringing working class communities in often very isolated rural areas together with their collective song, which would often actually be a song about the um, <clears throat> troubles of the past and so on. Right. But music yeah. can also be incredibly inspirational and you get some deep tune. It can really mobilise and motivate people in the most extraordinary way. I think it can. It was, I, I'm particularly fond of Oh Jeremy Corbyn. That was one of my favourites. Well, I like Bandera Rosa as well, <laughs> don't you? you know, <laughs> amazing, amazing tune. And you can imagine you're on a sort of big demonstrational march in Italy and you're all singing Bandera yeah. Rosa La Triumphera. Gives yeah. you that strength. Yeah, there's... Um, I mean, I used to live in Italy for 25 years on and off. Well, I, lived, I had an apartment there in Venice, and um, every year they have a they have a big uh, festival where they have the old boats come down the Grand Canal. It's called the Regatta Storica, and they, mm. and they have songs associated with everything that have been there since fifteen hundreds, yeah. and it's a way of knitting together the different. Yeah. Well, we all know that Italy has an enormous. Um, tradition of of extended family and very yeah. strong intergenerational bonds mm -hmm. and you know we've lost a lot of that in in the uk don't you feel we lost that with the <clears throat> industrial revolution with the breakup of um, communities and the um, enclosure of the commons and expelling people from rural areas and uh, with the increasing mobility of people we've lost that sort of extended family network and uh, I've been politically acutely aware of that ever since I first became a councillor in Haringey in the early 70s, that um, we had a very typical London borough in many ways, with about 25-30% of the population that had always been there, 60-70% um, of the population that hadn't and were either migrants from another country or migrants from a different part of, of the country and um big cities can be very lonely places oh yeah so uh, i was um lucky i was appointed as chair of the community development committee and project for the borough and we managed to do two things one was to spend a lot of money building community centers and secondly was to give a lot of support to small community groups and linguistic and ethnic minority and interest groups to try and build that sense of cultural unity and, and solidarity or cultural expression and solidarity and so um i do think that we have to look at community and family in a different way no absolutely yeah um um we need to re-nationalize a load of stuff don't we we certainly do we could start with mail rail water and energy that'd be a, a very a very good beginning um and that way through government intervention you can decide what a reasonable price is for that energy and you can also direct the energy production because at the moment uh, the the price crisis is caused 
partly by the energy companies that distribute the electricity and gas being incredibly greedy, but it's also behind that the producers, which is Shell, which is BP, which is ExxonMobil, which is EDF and so on, on a global scale, who are making an absolute fortune at the present time and selling it on to the distribution companies. And so it requires, yes, public ownership in a national sense, but it also requires a degree of international um, pressure on those on those companies. And so the power of oil companies um, around the world is extraordinary. I would recommend in the case of Britain reading a book called Crude Britannia, which is about the power of the oil companies in Britain, but also look at the abusive relationship that they've had with the people and governments of Nigeria, of Ecuador, many, many other countries where the deeply polluting of rivers and everything else, and they've paid not a halfpenny to clean up. Yeah, BP were forced to clean up when they messed up Louisiana and um, the Gulf of Mexico. Why? Because the US is very powerful and made them do it. They've done as bad or worse in much poorer countries around the world and done nothing. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think I'm, I was just looking at the manifesto for 2019. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say, I don't think there's been a single policy that you've endorsed and, and designed for the Labour Party or that you've been involved with as an independent backbencher that I've ever disagreed with. And I don't think... I think people understand and young people in particular understand that you have a, an integrated vision for the future and that's something that's missing from contemporary politics yes. in the uk i think it's about young people yes Listen, young people over tested and overstretched in school not included underpaid in work over indebted if they go to university pay far too much for insecure rent in the private rented sector, can't save any money. They are unbelievably depressed and angry. Yeah. Young people should not be growing up angry and depressed. They should be growing up full of hope. Exactly. And you can't give them hope unless you end the inequality in our society. Very uh, pithily put, may I say. Um, so uh, amongst that manifesto, there was... Um, this national care service, which fascinated me, I love that idea. Can you just explain that a bit? Yes. Um, the big uh, achievement of the 1945 to 51 Labour government was the National Health Service. There's no, no question about that. The idea of health care as a right, uh, not a privilege, as a right, which everyone could get. Great. Um, we've never had the same for care. And care... We're all going to need care at some point. You or I might well need care at some point. Anybody might. They don't have to be old either. They could be much younger. And um, it is terrifying for a family if they discover that um, elderly parents uh, may be suffering a bit of dementia, Alzheimer's, and are going to need care. And they are going to have to pay for it. Um, and they will end up possibly possibly having to remortgage their house if they're if they're a homeowner and um, they can just see the stuff eking away I, mean, I was talking to a family a couple of weeks ago um i went to see somebody in a care home uh he has quite profound needs it probably costs eight hundred thousand pounds a week to look after him in that home 
all that family can see is all their life savings just disappearing until such time as they've got hardly anything left when they will get some state support for him. And that that story could be repeated a thousand times all over the country. So my view is, yes, it would be expensive, but it's the right thing to do yes. to say the principle is, if with a principle is that we educate everybody, which it is, the principle is that we give everybody health care when they need it, which it is, then why not care as an addition to that? Absolutely. So a national care service in which you would access it on the basis of your need. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in a care home. It could mean you're getting some nursing care at home, some support at home. It could be a whole variety of things. But the principle of the National Care Service assessing and providing the necessary care for everybody to take away that fear. People say, oh, it's going to cost. Yes, it will. Paying for it through general taxation and corporate taxation is much fairer than the lottery of... Um, whether your family owns a home or not, and all that goes with that. Exactly. I've got a, a short story to, to tell you about um, my experience of this. We, uh, with Heaven 17, we were asked to go on an 80s cruise around the Mediterranean, which we did, and perform. It was a nightmare, but that's another matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but on board, there were a lot of older people, and one particular woman came up to us, and she was wheeling her her, her mother, I think it was, in a wheelchair and said, um, oh, I'm a big M17 fan, but uh, mum's not got long to live. And, you know, we decided to come on this cruise. I said, oh, how long have you been on the cruise for? She said, well, we've been on this boat for a year. And I said, really? Said, uh, I said, what? I said, yeah, because it's cheaper than us paying uh, to, to put her in a care home. What? Yeah, I'm telling you, this is what she told me. Said we'd rather spend money on being a cruise, being on a cruise until she passes away, than than spending it on uh, the the cost of the care home. Isn't that amazing? Was she happy on the cruise? Uh, well, she was clearly uh, very very unwell, but um, yeah, yeah, it was like it, it was like just a kind of bizarre piece of. You, you, it just brought it home, basically, the yeah, absurdity yeah. of this situation, you know. Yeah. Anyway, we're um, we're getting... I mean, I could talk for hours, obviously, and... Uh, oh, I did consider, um, at, at the peak of the popularity of, uh, uh, of your incumbency with the Labour Party, offering my services as a... Potentially as an MP, by the way, but I decided I'd have to give up my uh, my musical career, and I wasn't prepared to do that because wanted to do it properly. Well, but, you can do music and politics; they're not exclusive, you know. No, I know it's just, yeah, but yeah, I know how hard you work at, at doing what you do, and I'd want I wouldn't want it to be a sinecure, you know. I'd want it to be a real yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but is it also is important in life to do other things because that actually makes you a more rounded individual so um absolutely you know doing other stuff reading um in my case allotment stuff and things like that i think is good for the soul absolutely well it's cheaper than therapy isn't it and uh, <laughs> i've never done the therapy but i guess yeah. <laughs> yeah it definitely is cheaper than therapy i can testify to that right i always ask everybody who does the podcast some stupid kind of smash hits type questions okay. at the end. but they're not stupid because it's an insight into your personality and stuff so um what's your favorite film or one of them 
Citizen Kane. Interesting. It's a great film. Mm. Every time I watch that film, I kind of derive something different from it. It's interesting. Yeah. It kind of, it's it's a shape shifting film for me. It is because it, you you watch it several times and you see sort of um, differences coming within it. And mm. I think it's fast. And also as a film of its time, it was incredible. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was, it's timeless. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what's your favourite uh, book? Ooh. I know you're a big reader. That's a that's a really hard question because I've got thousands of books at home. Um, um, I think of the novel Chenua Chibi when things fall apart. I don't know that. Tell He's us a Nigerian writer, and um, it's at the time of independence. He is an Igbo person, so what was later Biafra, or briefly Biafra. And it's about how um, he gets a job in the local administration. Everybody looks up to him because of that, and they start wanting a bit of him. So he starts giving things to people to increase his power and influence within his family and wider community. And this then rapidly morphs into corruption, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Wow. And it's the sort of uh, a well-intentioned, um, individual being pressurized by a huge societal change from um, independence of, of Nigeria then ends up as a corrupt individual. It's a very brilliantly written book. The other one talking of um, novels or books in that period is The Famished Road by Ben Okri. Yes. Um, Amazing, amazing book. Again, describing the um, way in which the village life is gradually being transformed by a sort of market capitalism as opposed to a sustainable agricultural existence. So, uh, but there's so many books oh, that okay. are so good. I mean, I, I could. Um, of course. We, we need a separate three or four podcasts <laughs> in order just to discuss those. Oh, maybe we should do that. Um, so, um, and your favourite TV series, programme, past, present, box set? Um, well, I don't watch that much television, actually. Um, I like, um, basically, I like the documentaries and, and history programmes that are, are on, on television. I find I learn a lot from those. And so various history programmes that BBC Four push out, and unfortunately they're all on repeat these days, I think are fascinating, like the history of Athens, history of Rome. And also the wonderful one I watched was on um, the history and prehistory of Mexico. My wife is Mexican, as you probably yeah. know. And so um, you, you peel away the modern Mexico, you get to the colonial Mexico, you peel that away, you get to the... Um, Aztec and Maya Mexico you peel that away you get to the pre the pre part and it's just amazing and so yeah I, I get a lot of good ideas from uh, watching the documentaries of things but I'm not a great television watcher we don't have a television on all the time no we we don't really um apart from football but uh well pretty. yeah we we well Lara doesn't like football at all and so um she's kind of prepared to tolerate the Arsenal game on match of the day because it's what I want to watch. But she, if it's sort of, um, you know, Crystal Palace versus Newcastle, she said, well, 
<laughs> what, what's it got to do with you kind of thing, you know? She kind of gets the Arsenal thing. But, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. She went to an Arsenal game with me once, but she decided that Arsene Wenger was no good at the end of it. And I said, why? He's a great man. She said, no, 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 no. What happened with Vela? He was the Mexican player played for Arsenal. I said, well, he took him off at half time. Why? I said, because he was playing really badly. So no, he wasn't. He's obviously anti-Mexican. <laughs> she, she wouldn't have it any other way. I love Mexico, by the way. I, I've spent yeah. quite a bit of time there. It's oh, it's, it's a great, lovely country, isn't it? Country. And uh, Mexico City is just so incredibly vibrant. And Could you, could you live there? I've often thought about it. Um, I know my daughter, Eleanor, wants to, uh, wants to live there, actually. And she's never been, so I don't know how that Mexico works. City is wonderful, but it is 25 million people in one city. It is pretty chaotic and incredibly noisy and all that. But it's also uh, like the street is an endless theatre. Oh, it's incredible. We, I, I did a big sound installation in the... Um, in front of the Palazzo de Bears Artists there. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, immersive sound. It was incredible. It was on for a week, 24 hours a day. And um, they don't really have the same kind of restrictions on sound installations. <laughs> it, no. It, it's a chaotic place. But um, And that, that, was, uh, that, that was wonderful. And during the middle of that, we were staying in a hotel near the centre. And I noticed there were just a huge numbers of people coming into town. And I asked the, my, our interpreter, and he said, "Oh, there's a big concert of the of the biggest rock band in Mexico in the Zocala, yeah. big square." I said, "How many people are they expecting?" He said, oh, "About eight hundred thousand." The numbers are, are, are utterly extraordinary. I remember calling Laura during. Um, uh, Andres Manuel's second presidential attempt. He didn't win in the end. But, and she said she was going to go to the launch rally of his campaign. And so I, I called her that night and said, how did it go? She said, well, we're a bit disappointed. It wasn't very good. It wasn't as many people as we expected. A bit depressing. I'm not sure about this campaign. <laughs> we'll always do our best. And so she goes, on. Oh, I said, hang on a minute. How many people were there? She said, well, only a million. <laughs> <laughs> only a million. <laughs> no. But do you know what? There was no trouble at no. all. I didn't see any trouble. There were no arrests. It was all very peaceful. And it's very much, the I think, the bread and circuses thing there, you know, yeah. where they keep people... I guess obviously it's a revolutionary kind of... Well, there's a, also a big shortage of open space in Mexico City. I mean, it, it, yeah. we are very proud of our parks in every city in this country. And Mexico City has hardly any parks by comparison. I remember flying into Mexico City the first time, and I'm going, "This is crazy." I actually said it out loud because it was just all housing, wasn't it? On, yeah. on the hills, when you come in, there's no green spaces at all. No. The mayor of Mexico City now um, is um, creating a large park on a former rubbish tip on the edge of Mexico City. And she's working very hard on it, and it's quite extraordinary. They've also managed to resurrect some of the um, old canals around Ochimilco. So they are doing their best, but creating open space in such an urban area is very, very difficult. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, next question is um, an epiphanal moment in your life, a light bulb moment or a handbrake turn or a moment of supreme realisation. 
Or has it been one continuum? <laughs> one continuum, but I think um, one of the things that I... Well, there's many things you'll never forget, but one in particular was the um, realisation of the size of opposition to the Iraq war in 2003. I resigned and, from the Labour Party then. Uh, <laughs> I hope <laughs> you've kept copies of your resignation letters. Yeah. Um, I, I went on the stage to speak and I looked out and there's like a million people in Hyde Park and there's the biggest crowd ever in the history of this country and I thought, my God, that is, we've achieved something here in getting all these people together. To me, it was just an amazing, amazing moment. Incredible, yeah. Um, what? Who's your favourite composer or musician? Oh, it's it's got to be Ludwig van. Oh, Ludwig, bit of old. Gotta Ludwig. Be, it's got to be Ludwig. It's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be. I mean, you, you can't listen to Beethoven without being moved by it, can you? I don't know about you, but... Well, I, I know I'm a massive Beethoven fan, yeah. and, and uh, particularly his more kind of profound later works, you know, the... Yes. The ninth and the... Yeah, they are extraordinary. But there's, there's also, I think, the the genius of musicians like John Lennon, who was developing so much in his thought process, his life, his ideas, his poetry and everything, and then was murdered. Imagine if John Lennon was still around today. I don't think he'd have been playing with Paul McCartney at Glastonbury. I think it'd have been one night each. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what if you had not been a politician? What do you think a possible alternate career might have been? Oh, probably a farmer. Oh, bless you. Farmer or teacher, I don't know, something like that. Something like I, that. Actually, I was turned down for teacher training, so I ended up um, working in the unions instead. Well, probably just as well, though, eh? It's worked out okay. Yeah, I think it was probably, probably just as well, actually. Yeah. When, I, when I first came to London, I came in a truck and got out on Holloway Road to ended up in Islington. I could just as easily have got out in Brent or gone on Hackney or something. Who knows? Were you hitching? Yeah, I was hitchhiking to London, yeah. And the truck dropped me off on Holloway Road. A lot of people did that. We did that from Sheffield. Yeah. It was the normal yeah. those days. And Holloway Road is the obvious place to get off. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? Lots. Um, I always feel that there's so many more skills that we should all develop in our lives. I wish I could write better. I wish I could understand music better. I wish I could do more wood turning. I wish I could do more art. So there's lots of things you always want to do. And so... I wake up every morning thinking of all the things I've got to do today and all the things I want to do today. They're not necessarily the same thing. Um, so um, unfulfilled ambitions in in that sense, yes. Um, but my ambition is uh, the one, the eternal one of um, creating a much more fairer, a much more equal and sustainable society, not just here, but globally. And so... That's something that we walk in the steps of those that went before us and we hope others are going to walk in our steps as well. Oh, my goodness. That's a good way to end this conversation, I think. Um, I just want to say my wife, who is a massive fan, as mm -hmm. in fact everybody I know is, uh, we want to thank you for all the, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and Toryism that you had to... Uh, well, I'm, I'm from within your own party as well. But... Well, I look at it this way... Um, 
no good deed ever goes unpunished. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you mean. And my wife says, uh, just tell... I said, do you, do you want to ask Jeremy anything? I said, no, just tell him we love you. So... Bless her. Thank you. Thanks very much. And that's that's how really we're great. That's how we're going to end it. What an amazing talk this has been. Thank I you. I can't wait to put it out. I'm sure everybody's going to love this. And you should consider doing a podcast, definitely. We'll work on that. Yeah. The team are in the office now, and they're working on that already. I look at them now. They're already... They're already at their computers working it out. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely up for being Minister of the Arts if you ever get into power. You've got it. <laughs> You've got it. All right, okay. man. Thanks okay. a lot. Thanks, Bye. Mike. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you very much. Bye. Take care. Bye now. Well, that was Jeremy. Fascinating stuff, eh? Man of the people. Um, when I asked him the question about leading another party, that was quite an interesting response, wasn't it? Kind of implying that something might be cooking in the background. I know he's trying to keep his powder dry at the moment. Uh, he's very popular with young people, obviously. He's very popular with uh, people on the left of the political persuasion, which I'm proud to say I am. Uh, he's a socialist. He's a humanist. Don't think I fully agree with the Arsenal bit, but um, he loves music and art and uh, gardening and manholes. Um, hope everyone's well, feeling well. Now we're entering into autumn. Um, I am fearful for this country uh, for the next few months, but together we can get through it and hopefully there are brighter times ahead for everyone. If you need to contact me, want to contact me with ideas for the programme, uh, potential sponsors would be great as well. Uh, my email address is electronically martin with a y at gmail.com. And uh, consider sponsoring me for a small amount of money on patreon.com slash electronically hours uh, to help keep this independent and advert free and to keep it going as long as possible, because at the moment it's costing me money, and I would like it not to be costing me money, so your help is greatly appreciated. That's it. I told you it was going to be an amazing episode next week, and even, well, it's not more amazing, but in a different way, just as exciting episode. So I will see you next week. Bye! Ian Furness. Hi Martin, congratulations on the success you're having on the pod. Many thanks for making them. I'm something of a latecomer, but with an hour and a half travel time each way to get to and from work, I'm certainly catching up at a rate of knots. For me, your music and that of your guests was a huge part of my life growing up. Um, nice. Can you imagine the stories we would hear if podcasts had been around in the times of the Rat Pack? Isn't technology amazing now? Mm. 
Nice. Um, anyway, having just caught up on the John Fox discussion and listening to you both speaking about classical music and the overlap with synth music, my first suggestion would be Bella Chen, Bell Chen, uh, Elam Minus, uh, Fifi Wrong. Um, great, I, just a great name. The problem with all, uh, these is there has to be a certain amount of popularity in the UK and US markets. Um, uh, I can't just put on people who are just purely excellent and just throw it out uh, because, unfortunately, um, people don't trust me fully. <laughs> so uh, they have to be kind of uh, above a certain level of, of known, as it were. But thanks anyway for the suggestions. Thanks, Ian. Uh, where are we next? So we're looking at Elias Norgren. Thanks for bringing electronically yours to the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, suggestions. Neil Tennant, Chris Lowe, another one. Bill Nelson. I really want to get Bill Nelson, actually. Ryuchi Sakamoto. Um, is, is, is he ill? Uh, or has he passed away? No, I, I think he's still... Richard Barbieri, Barbieri we've done. Um, that's Elias Norgren from Sweden. Thank you. Thank you. This is from Mark Milton. Hi, Martin. Love, 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 love the podcast. Can't wait to perform in Boston in September. That same weekend, I'll also be seeing Roxy Music and Pet Shop Boys slash New Order live. It's like time travel, isn't that it? That sounds cool. Um, while on a recent YouTube rabbit hole, I came across fellow Sheffieldian rockers Def Leppard performing a cover version of an early Human League song, Only After Dark, and was completely surprised by it. What are your favourite or at least favourite cover versions of one of the songs you've written and why? Uh, the people tend not to cover our songs because they, they were quite particular. There's that kind of um, screamo version of uh, Temptation. I can't remember the name of the band that did it, but that was quite good. There's a video of it as well. Um, yeah, there, it's, there aren't that many cover versions of our stuff. Oh, i tell you what I do like, though, is uh, Nouvel Vague's version of Let Me Go. Uh, that's really good. Um, sorry, carry on. No, no. Um, if you're looking for suggestions, I'd love to hear you interview Chris Lowe and or Neil Tennant. Lady Tron. <laughs> sorry. He's just gone off the email while I'm halfway through yeah. reading it. Um, Peaches. Marcia. Peaches would be cool. Marshall. Uh, Pe- I don't know Peaches. Uh, they did that awesome song, Fuck the Pain Away. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. Marshall. Beautiful the, lyrics. The KLF and any of the house pioneers like Kevin Saunderson. That would be awesome. I'm currently talking to Bill Drummond, but uh, it looks like he's trying to get me involved in something he's doing as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> uh, so I'm not really optimistic about that. Adrian Sanchez, hello Martin, thanks for reading my last email. Just finished Claudia Brook and Susanna Freytag from Propaganda. Enjoy their stories. Please don't stop, I won't. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Observatory in Santa Ana, California in October. So are we. Very famous venue. Um, here, here are some more suggested names to add to your long list. Al Jorgensen, nope. Bill Lieb of Frontline Assembly, Kevin Key of Skinny Puppy, Bob Stanley or Pete Weeks from Saint-Étienne. 
I think I was put in touch with them. Eric Hilton or Bob Garza of Thievery Corporation, Daniel Melero from Argentina, and a young girl called Danielle Johnson that goes by the Dan's the name of Dan's CM. Adrian Sanchez, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is from Dirty Tuxedo. Hi there, I was wondering if you might be interested in a guitarist that is electronic and synthesised. Perhaps even Martin might be interested enough to want to come over and have a play. Uh, That's not going to happen. Uh, I'm sorry to be rude, but um, life's too short. <laughs> no, that's incredibly rude. I'm that so sorry. Rude. No, it's not that. It's just... Um, uh, <laughs> if you were around in London and, you know, whatever. But thank you for reaching out, Dirty. Yeah. Good name. Good name.